The theme of this session is Worship Forms Missional People. And uh, our conviction is that missional people are people who are comprehensible in a culture, but who within the culture are also deviants, are different in the culture. And the reason we're different is that we, we have uh, inhabited the story, and the story has inhabited us. And we've become gracious and forgiving, passionate for reconciliation, thirsty and hungering for justice. That's what the story has done as, as the story inhabits us. God's mission inhabits us. Now, the term that the early Christians used most frequently to talk about this reality is resident aliens. Resident aliens. They got this term from the wider society, and already we find Peter using it in his epistle. In chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beseech you, as resident aliens and exiles, as paroikoi, to abstain from the desires in the flesh that war against you. Conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles, among the non-Christians. A sense of being resident, but a sense also of being a part of a different kingdom. And as early Christians would write letters to each other, they would write letters from Christians, the, the saints resident in Toronto, to the resident aliens in Indiana, Medicine Hat, or <laughs> whatever. Yeah, they would be writing to each other across great distances, and they always called themselves resident aliens. And it's interesting to see how people writing today talk about this. And we've got three examples here for you, the one of which comes from Archbishop Rowan Williams. He says, Jesus was both a native and a stranger, both native and stranger. Deeply Jewish, deeply a part of the community in Galilee, deeply a part of that culture in its understandings, and yet somebody who kept challenging the culture and who eventually was crucified within that culture. Jesus, a native. Jesus, a stranger. Jesus, a resident alien. And then we read from Andrew Walls extensively on this, these two principles of enculturation. When the gospel enters a culture, it needs to be indigenized and at the same time, pilgrim, indigenized and pilgrim. It finds God at work in the society. It finds God blessing traditions of the society, God blessing the cultural mores of society in many ways. At the same time... It's a critique, a challenge to the culture. It's pilgrim. It's on its way through. <laughs> now, there was a group of Lutherans that met in Africa in the 1990s, and they came up with the, what they called the Nairobi Statement on Worship and Culture. And they have a slightly more uh, elaborate way of talking about the same reality. We've talked about resident and alien. And here, if you look at those four categories, the resident is contextual. So it's number two there. It finds ways in which there is a dynamic equivalence between the gospel and the culture. It will speak the languages of those cultures. It fits in. There is a, there's a kind of creative assimilation into the culture, so it belongs, mm -hmm. belongs there. It's contextual. But at the same time, it is countercultural in that it 
has these three dimensions. The transcultural thing, which means it's a part of a story that goes way back and includes practices that go way back. Liturgy, Eucharist, uh, baptism, the peace greeting. Christians have been doing things that they have been doing across cultures, transculturally, across history. We have a text, the Bible, that we gather around that is transcultural. And at the same time, number three, the gospel is countercultural. It will transform all peoples, all cultures, not to conform, but to transform, challenging all forms of oppression or social injustice. All forms of bondage. It will challenge in such a way as to bring liberation. So the gospel is countercultural. And at the same time, number four, it is cross-cultural. And cross-cultural means that we're a part of a family in which there are many, many sub-families from around the world. And we in Toronto are going to be drinking the waters that are provided for us by Christians who are in Kenya or Christians who are in Pakistan or Christians who are in Latin America. We are going to be receiving their gifts as they receive our gifts. We become a global community of gift giving. So there's this, this enormous sense of unity belonging to each other mm-hmm. across those cultures. So the gospel imbibes all four of those characteristics. And in our worship, then, we will express all of these things. We'll be part of a transcultural reality that goes across the centuries. We will be contextual in that what we do will be understandable in our culture. But we will somehow be odd. We will be countercultural. We will be going against the grain of our own societies. And finally, also cross-cultural, a part of this big story across cultures. So the gospel is distinctive, has a distinctive voice, a distinctive embodiment uh, within any culture in which it is inserted. And so now, how does worship form missional people? And we were thinking about how formation happens in our society. (laughs) We are all subject to intensive formation within our culture, aren't we? In so many ways. The culture industries, the advertisements, and the internet, the the jingles, the logos, we're completely uh, surrounded People specialize in surrounding us with things that we will memorize, that will become deeply a part of us, and that will shape our values Mm -hmm. and condition our desires. And they work on our our insecurities, don't they, our inadequacies. Unless you have this, unless you do this, you're just not quite uh, the full person you could be. I've developed a deep friendship with a neighbor uh, who lives next to us. He is an African-American in his late 60s. And he was told by the advertisers when he was in his 20s that he would be sophisticated and he would be acceptable if he smoked, mm-hmm. if he smoked camels. Mm-hmm. And he started to smoke and he enjoyed smoking. And today smoking is killing him. Mm-hmm. And he was reflecting back to the way in which he was hooked by the advertisers mm-hmm. who gave him something that he could not get rid of and now he is in mortal danger as a result of something that he had started to do back yeah. then. Well, interesting, he was reflective about it. He, he saw that in his own life, the way that he was captured by advertising there. But you know we're surrounded by fear. We've been, do you have the weather channel here? <laughs> you know, 
We, we will, if there's not a storm at the moment, we'll show you photos of past storms. Yeah. You know, or it's a yeah, yeah. There's a there's a typhoon here, and there's an earthquake there. We used to go out on the front porch and watch the lightning. You know, now we go in the basement and under the stairs because we're afraid. But we know too much. We're surrounded by warnings. You go into the grocery store and you're told that you should not eat anything that is not light. Yeah, <laughs> cholesterol, high fat, sodium, sugar. We're told you know, that we need this amount to retire in security. We're told at airports, you know, that we're surrounded by danger. We are conditioned to be a people of fear. Our friend John Bonk says, the great purpose of modern life is to move from birth to death as comfortably as possible. Now, the people who form us in these kinds of ways are experts. They're well-funded. They are psychologically astute and highly paid. And what do we have to offer in response? Worship. Worship is counterformation. Worship is an act of glorifying God in which God forms us to be people who aren't going to be conned by all that's going on about us. I have an auntie who has a little sign that she puts on her television. So as she's watching television, she sees this little handmade sign. It says, who do you think you're kidding? <laughs> so she's trying to counter that message that's always coming to her. Now, when we think about the formation of ritual, uh, we have something to offer you. We come from the country to the south, and so we'll offer you something from there. It, it, except Alaska isn't just to the south, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> this is known as the Pledge of Allegiance. And so if you would turn, turn to your handout. I was recently at, my, uh, at our granddaughter's uh, award ceremony at the school. And, of course, the first thing that Americans do at any sort of public event in a school is everyone stands up and faces the flag and says this Pledge of Allegiance. They put their hand on their heart and they say the Pledge of Allegiance. And so let's look, just look at it for a minute, see what it says. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God. Indivisible. With liberty and justice for all. Written in 1892, adopted as a national ple pledge in 1942, during World War II. It was revised in 1954 by putting in that one nation under God. It used to be one nation indivisible, but then God was put in there in 1954. Now, we have a flag code in the U.S., and according to it, the pledge should be rendered by standing at attention, facing the flag with the right hand over the heart. Um, so children in school are taught this from the time they Every morning. Yeah. They go and they do this and they say that. And, you know, it affects people. What you do every day shapes you. How often do most Americans say the Lord's Prayer? Most Americans? Well, they might say it once a week. Those who are liturgically more alert might say it every day. Here are kids in school who are brought up to think that this mm -hmm. is what their allegiance is. Mm -hmm. The flag is something that Americans are told we can desecrate. It is holy. The flag is not allowed to touch the ground. You know, when you take it down, you have to fold it in a certain way. It's, it's a, a sacred object in America. 
And so here is something that profoundly shapes people's sense of who they are and what they are willing to give their lives for and what they are willing to kill for. Now, if we are going to have different values, perhaps we should not cross our hearts. I mean, Mennonites, we, we are them. You know, when you are in a situation like that, you have to decide what you're going to do. So what we do is stand quietly and respectfully, and we don't say that pledge. I was taught as a child, as a Mennonite child, we don't do that. Our first allegiance is to God, and we don't do that. Well, this was very embarrassing for children to not have, you know, not do the same thing. But that is a nonconformity that we were taught. It is, you know, but, but can, we, can we do something that we might put in its place? So while everybody is saying, I pledge allegiance to the flag. We, here's, here's an alternative one. Which, and maybe we could all say this together, which, because I really think that Canadian Christians could say this with Pakistani Christians, could say it with Christians from the U.S. as well. So should we say this together? I pledge allegiance, allegiance to, to Jesus Christ. Christ and to God's kingdom for which he died, one spirit-led people the world over, indivisible, with love and justice for all. See, it has the same pace, the same pattern as the other one. So we can say that at the same time other people are saying the pledge to the, uh, to the flag. But you can see what the people who wrote this, some our friends and colleagues of ours, what they're working at here is, is formation a way of countering the formation that is so strong in our culture. The one leads to war, the other leads to peace and reconciliation. And we are so struck by the power of the second vision, which is something that unites us in Christ and allows Christ's kingdom to be our primary allegiance, our first passport. So we are saying we live in a world of constant formation. Technology is the most powerful uh, influence in our lives. We give ourselves over to it, you know, hour by hour, moment by moment. And we're struck by the way in which Christians have very little room to catechize people. Um, we saw recently that a child from a Christian home in the U.S., by the time she's 18, has been in church and Sunday school for a lot, maybe 750 hours. And she's been in school for maybe 11,000 hours. 750, 11,000. She's been watching television and been on the internet for 15,000 hours. The church is swamped by the catechizing, by the formation that happens in our broader society. And how are we going to handle this kind of thing? What we propose again and again is that Worship is our most potent counterformation. Mm -hmm. It is the place in which we can be formed to be, to use an old term, Jesus people. <laughs> people mm -hmm. who have his peculiar kind of nativeness and strangeness. People who are resident, but people who are alien. Mm -hmm. People who have this capacity to be both. Identifying with others and question posing of mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. It's this kind of balance. That but so what does worship have to do with that? Worship. I, I mean, how, how do we. I think part of it is that we expect worship to do that to us. You know, if we go ho hum to worship and do the, just do the things we always do, it's got to be more than that. We so want we need to, to learn to expect to ex that worship is yeah. going to change. Yeah, us. God's, I'm coming here 
in the presence of God, expecting to be changed, expecting to be transformed in order to face into the culture in which I live. So expectation is important. And perhaps asking in what way does worship form us? Looking, you know, if we can get a bit of distance from what we do to see, and how is this working to form us mm-hmm. to be this kind of resident alien? So, so to notice it happening. To notice it yeah, happening. It's going to happen. Let's see it. Let's, let's name it. Now, one thing that we encountered in England back in the 1960s, we encountered the advent of the peace greeting. Where did that come from? Well, it came from the early church, and then most people, except those in religious orders, didn't do it for a millennium. Except in India. It was kept in India. In the church of North India, they proposed this, and it was a gift then to Christians in the West, through Vatican II, through liturgical movement in the 1960s. And and people realized that it was in Scripture. I mean, this is really an ancient form uh, within the liturgy. And so it was reintroduced in many many cultures, many Christian denominations. It involved words, it involved actions, uh, touching, reaching. And, and this didn't go over too well with our Engli- many of our English friends. And uh, we, were, we were in one congregation where they said, up here in, the, in this front part of the church is what's called the peace-free zone. And <laughs> if you really didn't want to do this, that's where you sat. Otherwise, you have to shake hands, mm-hmm. and uh, this was just very difficult for some people. And what we've discovered is that it has great richness. And in early Christianity, this was the time not only to celebrate the peace of Christ and to wish the peace of Christ, but it was the time at which I've been having a struggle with somebody, and I can go and make peace before we together go to the Eucharist. And one of the deacon's jobs in this, we're talking about Syria in the third century, the deacon's job was to find the people who are having problems with each other and and prepare them for the liturgy in which the peace greeting was the place of reconciliation. of The deacon will intone, is there anybody that has anything against anybody else? Uh And then there will be a time of milling around in which people will Uh give the embrace, give the handshake, give the namaste, give whatever. And then... uh, Peace will be made in preparation for peace around the Eucharistic table. Now that is a a step beyond what most of our churches do today in the peace greeting. And so it indicates an area for development. But it's very rich. That can form a united congregation of forgiven people. Hmm. So it's an example of the way in which worship can be forming of us. So we're going to spend just a few minutes now going, as we, as we did before, I think we did this last evening, looking at some of the actions of worship and what happens. How, how are we formed? How are we formed by gathering together when we come to worship together? What difference does that make? Why is that important? What does it do to us to gather into one place for worship? It seems so simple. But actually, by doing that week by week, getting up out of bed, and to the church is a very important thing to do. You're talking about the formative power of gathering, simply the discipline of week by week gathering with this motley group, this heterogeneous group, this group of people who were different from each other, who don't have all that much in common except that Jesus is their Lord, God is their Father, they are sisters and brothers. And isn't isn't it true, as we watch people going to take communion, 
we think, these are my people. All these odd collection of people going to the Eucharistic table. Those are my people. This is where I belong. This is the, the formative power of coming together. It's important. It gives a sense of peoplehood. It gives a sense of primary identity. These are my people. And then the gathered people engage in the countercultural activity of praise. We're praising God. And there's this overflow, a response of love as we receive from God. And it makes us a people of hope. And it, it cuts that, that cynicism and that, that de- de- dejection that we might feel. It gives, us, it gives us hope and joy. And so by engaging in the countercultural activity of praise, we become a hopeful people, a joyful people, a people whose reflexes are not ones of cynicism, but ones of expectant anticipation. When we come in worship and say, I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and to God's kingdom for which he died, one spirit-led people the world over, indivisible with love and justice for all, where we confess our faith and our, our adherence to Jesus Christ, what happens to us? Jesus Christ, the one who has the ways forward. Jesus, the one who offers forgiveness. Jesus, the one who offers peace. Jesus, the one who transforms priorities. What happens to it? Well, God says, wow, if you're going to say that, then this is the kind of person you're going to be. You're going to be a Jesus person. If that is what you say week by week in worship, that's the kind of people you are. You're Jesus people. We are infused with the wisdom of Jesus, infused with the way of Jesus, infused with the presence of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. That's an action that forms our character. And when we tell the story, the big story of Christ, through sermon, through reading of scripture, what are we doing as we tell that story? What is God doing to us? God is altering our sense of identity, our sense of where we've come from, our sense of the story that infuses our Mm -hmm. sense of what is really true. Yeah, we belong. This This is our sense of identity. We tell that big story. And then we tell little stories. We bring what we call reports from the front. They used to be called testimonies. (laughs) Reports from the front in which we have reported on the things that we have seen during the week, ways in which God has been at work, ways in which God has been work in global breakthroughs, ways in which God has been at work in our own relations and people that we know in our own lives. Recently in our church, for example, a a woman who works in the hospice, she came and and told an incident that had happened there in which God was so present in in this uh, moment of dying with the family uh, around. And it's hearing a story like that gives faith to others who hear it and say, I would like to die like that. that. Yeah. yeah, then it's possible for us too. The little story makes us alert, sensitive, and it often is the greatest source of praise. It is not simply that we praise God for what God has done historically. We praise God for what God has done in our and life. Of course, in our culture, we do this. You know, people say PTL. Do you know that? PTL. What does it mean? Praise, praise the Lord. So people tell you something. PTL. Or they say... Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I have friends who always say, thank you, Jesus. Um, but it's, it's a sense of seeing God at work, naming it, living in the awareness, living in the presence of God in our life. And uh, worship will change us as we listen and we tell our stories. Baptism. Baptism in which 
We die to the old, are born to the new in Christ. And through this, we are changed in that we are immersed into the mission of God. We're ordained into the mission of God. And in Eucharist, in communion, when we come to communion and we tell the story, we remember this multivalent uh, worship that brings us together. You, the Eucharistic table is like, like a jewel in which the light comes and it shatters in many, many colors in the presence of the holy. We are made holy as we worship in that wonderful focal place. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We are fed fed deeply, fed profoundly. We are changed as we come to the Eucharistic table. And foot washing. Foot washing is something that some of us practice and some of us may not. We come from a tradition that does. In a sense, we play, we reenact that uh, John 13 story. And in imitation of Christ and following his instructions and obedience to him, we wash one another's feet and we experience washing. We, we receive God's forgiveness. We become people who are willing to kneel down before our brother or sister. And, and willing to let them kneel down in front of us. It is a leveling. It is an occasion in which we really become servants of one another as a forgiven community, washed by Jesus. And one of the most difficult things that we do, the most demanding things that we do together is we pray together. We wrestle with God. We, God, where are you in this situation? We've been praying about this so long. Please, God, come and do what we know you can do. We can handle it, God, you know, wrestling with God in prayer. And so we know people in South Africa who are praying against apartheid, praying against apartheid, giving themselves to crossing the lines to go into communities where they weren't supposed to be, to meet with others, working for change. And everybody's saying there's going to be a race war in South Africa, but people praying for it and wrestling for it, believing that God can do the impossible. And it happens. Suddenly it happens. And evil is shown to be weaker than anybody thought. Take the Berlin Wall, another sample of this kind of thing. Christians praying against it, Christians working against it, Christians saying, this is self-evidently eternal, this wall. It is strong, it is well built, unlike other things in East Germany. You know, this wall is really there and you'll get machine gunned if you try to do anything funny. And the wall falls. You know, there are times when we have seen these changes, and so we praise God for these big things, and we praise God for the little things, Mm -hmm. and we pray, agonizing, lamenting, longing, wrestling. We're praying the kingdom. Praying the kingdom is what we're called to do. And we become people, um, as Jesus said, don't lose heart. Keep praying, you know. We become patient and courageous prayers. And people who are willing to wait, to expect, and to hold on. That's the kind of people we are. It isn't perfect yet, but God is in it, and God is doing it. And the people who are praying for things are often the people who will act in furtherance of those things. Prayer and activity are intertwined. And activity can be a form of prayer. Uh, This can be something that is misused. Well, don't just pray. Do something. Uh, or, 
You know, because both prayer and doing are necessary. They go together. And then we're a people who sing. We have a friend who uh, has this wonderful phrase. He says, we sing our deepest beliefs. And so we say, "Who?" Jesus says, who do you sing that I am? Who do you sing that I am? Beautiful. Singing in worship incorporates us, builds us together. There's something about the whole body, the breath. And singing together is more than just saying the words. It's more than just playing the instrument. It puts together. There's a synergy in that that is so powerful. There's some, sometimes people, we have one friend, a Baptist minister in England, he said, we're just going to stop singing because it causes so many divisions in our church. We're going to do without singing. But <laughs> that's not the solution, really. Um, it, it, over the years, various people have, have said different things about singing. Bonhoeffer, for example, said, singing in unison, singing all the same line, is, is, holds us together in, as, as in a unity. And Mennonites say, no, you've got to sing harmony, <laughs> because that indicates that there is a diversity of gift in the body. <laughs> so there are ways of, of uh, dealing with it. But uh, through all of these little examples we've given, uh, and we encourage you to do the same in, in your worship, in the worship that you lead. You know, when you're, when you're leading prayers, what are you, what, where, where are you leading people to? Is it just saying words? Is it just like wooden responses? Or is it actually the sense of this wrestling with the living God? Our deep belief is that singing should be something that is transcultural, that is, that grows, goes across the centuries, mm -hmm. that draws on treasures old, and treasures new, both are necessary, and it should be something that is cross-cultural. Namely, we need to sing in Indiana. We need to sing songs that come from Tanzania. And these have been renewing to us. Sisters and brothers from South Africa came, and they taught us a song, and we've been singing it ever since. It's become one of our theme songs in the congregation, and it entered a recent Mennonite hymnal. But it came because they brought it, this kind of intertwining across the boundaries. Iona specializes in this kind of thing. Singing makes us different. It changes us. Now, what we've been talking about here is ways in which worship forms us. Worship is counterformation. And those of us who are involved in pastoral ministry really need to be alert to this kind of thing. Not just do something because it's always been done, but ask, why are we doing this? What is this doing in terms of God's mission? How is this contributing to making us a people who are involved in God's work and making us in interesting, making us mm -hmm. uh, resident alien sorts of people? And our contention is that worship will transform us in four ways. So we have four ideas. In the first place, worship. In worship, we have an experience of the holy. There is a divine and human encounter in worship. Sometimes people say, um, well, I went to church and Sunday school as usual, as usual. And what happened? Well? I went to church and Sunday school as usual. It's kind of a habitual thing, no sense of encounter with, with and God And the there. habit is something that we, you will observe, encourage. 
We think the habit of gathering is extremely important and formative. And often somebody who will say, I went to church and Sunday school as usual, was not deeply in tune with what actually was happening in that person's life. So we're not rubbishing that. But if what if the person, instead of saying, I went to church and Sunday school as usual, said, I tasted and I saw that the Lord was good. Psalm 34, 8. The sermon reoriented me to God's reign. I heard God speak. God was really present, truly present with God's people. I have met the Holy One, and I've been changed. I cannot live without worship. There are stories from North Africa at the time of the persecution of Diocletian, and they would say, we cannot make it without the Eucharist. We can't live without meeting Jesus at table. You know, this is what sustains us under persecution. This is a gift that God offers us, uh, you know, and we can look the other way and not receive it. But God is there. God, the Holy One, is there and offers us the presence and the, the uh, power of of knowing the presence of God. And so we're moved by the presence of God. We're moved by the otherness of God. We're touched by the grace of God. We are embraced by the welcome of God. We are sustained by the prayers of God's people. Worshiping God changes me. I go back because I encounter the holy in worship. So that's one way we are transformed. A second way that we want to mention is Worship shapes religious affections, affections. Now, this is a word with kind of a special meaning. We're talking about affections which are our motivating feelings. Things which dispose us towards others, dispose us towards God, dispose us towards our neighbor. And these affections shape our worship and will vary from one denomination to another to uh, our different traditions within the Christian family. And this is an area in which Christian traditions can legitimately learn from each other. So these are not issues. These are not doctrinal issues necessarily. But they're underlying dispositions. They're feelings. They're emotional currents upon which ideas ride. Ideas will ride upon feelings upon affections. Now let's let's think about this a little bit. We we first encountered a discussion of this from Stephen Land, who is a Pentecostal theologian. And he mentions that within Pentecostal movements, the affections, the primary affections are gratitude, compassion, and courage. Gratitude, compassion, and currency. Courage. Courage. Worship not only informs people or stimulates their thinking. It actually sets people free. Mm-hmm. It sets people free with the sense that God has not only acted generally in history, but God has acted in our history. God has acted in my life. It happened to me. I have seen God at work. And because I have seen God at work, because I have experienced God at work, because I know that I would not be alive without God's work. So in worship, we provide space where these affections, which are related to the will, it's, it's, it's the feelings, the motivational feelings that are connected to the will, how we, we then are, are going to go out into our life. 
so that God's reconciling purposes are internalized. We allow space for these reconciling purposes. We give them time. We give them opportunity to shape our inner affections, our inner emotions, our inner wellspring of motivation. So if, if a Pentecostal theologian, in this case Stephen Land, recognizes that in his tradition gratitude is one of these underlying motivational streams, then you make space in your worship. They, they make space in their worship for that to be expressed. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you know, there's time for yeah. that. There's space for that. Or compassion, which is one of these underlying streams that lie under the actions of worship. You give space for that. You give and opportunity. We've experienced that in the altar in which people who are obviously at the end of their tether will come forward for prayer and in which they will experience. Yeah. In a Pentecostal church, yeah. there is time and space for people to do that, to come and and kneel down to, to weep and to be hands laid on as people are singing. This, this is because this is one of these streams that, that is recognized as, as important in that tradition. Courage, courage yeah. to face into the difficulties of their life. So there's time for people to talk about that, to say it, to express it, and to pray for one another. Now, now we come from differing traditions. Here we have the Pentecostals, gratitude, compassion, and courage. Um, you know, we have in this room, I would imagine, I don't know, 10 denominations or something like that. And we have differing flavors of the various denominations. And so it would be interesting really to... We were reading uh, Philip Kennison, who uh, would reflect the Churches of Christ. And he named what are the affections of, his, of that tradition. And he's, he chose humility trust and hope as being these motivational streams within that tradition. Are these less strong than the Pentecostal ones? No, they're different. No, they're different. They would be present there too. But in the Churches of Christ, he would say, we allow expression and encouragement for, for those characteristic affections to flow. And what we're saying to those of us who are leaders is that we need to be alert to what the characteristic affections of our tradition are. And we then need to ask, in what ways do these need to be supplemented for the sake of participation in God, God's mission by affections that we are going to get from other Christian traditions? So, so these motivational streams are, are important. They also help us to, um, to give critique mm -hmm. to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, for example, we could take something from our tradition. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would say that probably one of the affections of our tradition would be uh, peacemaking. Mm -hmm. Peacemaking. Mm -hmm. Because any Mennonite church you go to, this will be a theme of their prayers, of their song, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, there can also be, however, a certain stoicism among Mennonites in which we are going to grit our teeth and we're going to get to peace, you know, come hell or high water, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> that, a Mennonite bishop. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, think about what are the strengths. Think about what we need to learn from others. Think about what God wants to do to enable us to be participants yeah, yeah. in God's mission. And when we go into each other's worship, 
you know, that we can recognize that we're, there's a different stream flowing here and that we, ha we can learn and gain from each other. This is a very powerful uh, stream underneath here. So that, we'll leave that with you. You can think about that. That's so that was affections. Now actions. Worship shapes actions. These affections, as we were talking about, flow into action. If we are people of gratitude, if that is, Pentecostals are saying, that's one of their motivational affections, it will then flow out into how they behave. And what we realize is that in our debate with people who are not Christians, people who are atheists, whatever, that our ideas are vastly less effective in communicating than our embodiments. The ways in which we embody the ideas, the ways in which the ideas are lived out in life, embodied participation in God's mission is the strongest thing we have to offer in evangelism. Debating with the critics of Christianity will not be won. These debates will not be won by argument. People will go on like billiard balls knocking against each other, and they will simply fly off. Yeah. But if somebody does something that strikes their imagination, that is somehow iconic, that is somehow surprising, mm -hmm. that somehow looks unlike Christians are supposed to behave, people might start taking Jesus seriously and the gospel seriously. And, and a word for that is incarnation. We are the incarnation of the incarnation. In our lives, mm -hmm. we become like Jesus. The we are the we body of Christ. Uh -huh. Now, there's a theologian, William Cavanaugh, who says the Christians are called to engage in actions that are more interesting. Not just interesting, but somehow more interesting. And so we have a sample of this from the early church for you. The Epistle to Diognetus, one of your papers. And it comes to you in two forms. The one is for antiphonal use, and that is you can use in your worship. But we're going to look at the original text. So, so not the one that's laid out for reading by various parts, but the, the paragraph side. Mm -hmm. Who is, where does this come from? Second century. Nobody knows who wrote it, and nobody's sure who the addressee, Diognetus, was. But it's one of the real treasures of early Christianity. Okay. Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They don't live in cities of their own. They don't use a peculiar form of speech. They don't follow an eccentric manner of life. And yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each one's lot has been cast, and, and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live in their own countries. But only as resident aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens. And they endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland. And yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marriage like everyone else and they beget children. But they do not cast off their offspring. They share their food with each other. But not their marriage bed. They busy themselves on earth. But their citizenship is in heaven. They love all people. And by all are persecuted. They are unknown. And still they are condemned. They are put to death. And yet they are brought to life. They are poor. And yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute. And yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored. But in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are defamed. 
and are vindicated. They are reviled. And yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. To put it simply, what the soul is in the body. That Christians are in the world. This is not canonical scripture, but it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and it is our common text. And it gives us a missional vision of people who have been formed by worship to be involved in what God really cares about. And, uh, you know, what we would do if we were a smaller group is sit down with this and look at details. But here are people who are living in ways, are they residents? Yes, they Clearly. wear the same clothing and food and and cut as of the local country. Are they natives? Yes, yeah, sure. they're living in ways that are familiar. Are they indigenized? Yes, but are they strangers? Yeah, yeah they're different. They're distinctive, aren't they? Are they aliens? Yeah. yeah. So interesting. Uh, and the things you know, we would need to look at it with some care. But goodness sakes. Look at that one. Um, they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. What is that about? In this culture, at that, in the Roman culture, a baby that was born was not a person until the father had received that child. The father would receive it and give it a name. Or the father would say, I don't want that child. In which case, the mother would need to take it out and, and expose the child at the local dump, the local tip, the local what? sanitary landfill. I don't know what you call it in Canada. <laughs> and, and of course, the baby would die. And, and what Christians would do is not do that, but they would go out then to the dumps and they would pick up the discarded infants who were generally girls and bring them home and raise them. Now, here was a behavior that raised questions raised questions about the value of life in this Christian community, the commitment to life, raised questions also about their willingness to expand their families by bringing children into their families. And then it changed the demography of the church and made the early church disproportionately female. Or one other point here, they are poor and yet they make many rich. What is that talking about? It's talking about a, a community that shares, that... that that equalizes their economics. So this is a very rich document. Mm -hmm. And um, it's fun to do something like this for us, you know. We, we have televisions, but mm -hmm. we have cars, but, you know, taking things that are, are totally typical of our cultures. But how, how are we different? We have Apple products, but... but. <laughs> <laughs> right. I see a couple of apples out there. <laughs> So affections shape actions, and we become distinctive. We do more interesting things. Now, we're going to show pictures of more interesting things in just a minute. First, just to say that where we are going to demonstrate these more interesting things may more be in the sphere of work than anywhere else. It's how we behave during our time at work. At our stage, we'll say it's equally important how you retire. But the theologian Andrew Kirk has said, the life of work is for almost all Christians the primary missionary frontier. Are we a part of God's mission as we work or not? 
So let's look at a few pictures. Oh my. This woman gave her kidney to that woman. There is an epidemic of kidney donation in northern Indiana. <laughs> because the man on the right in, in 2007 gave his kidney to the woman on the left. She was dying. He came to her church. He discovered that she was very ill. He discovered that she had an extremely rare blood type. And he discovered that it was the same blood type that he had. And he thought, why am I going to keep my kidney if I could give her 20 more years of effective life at some small risk to myself? But they'd say, well, don't you need both kidneys? He said, I am willing to trust the Lord to enable me to do what I can do to give her years of effective life. We are sisters and brothers. We are family. And so there is Robert with the donee and the physicians who are surrounding it and the newspaper reporters who are writing on it. And they say, what do, kidney, what do Christians do? They give kidneys. More interesting behavior. My goodness. People shake their heads. This is a story that comes from London. We in the 1980s were involved in the anti-nuclear movement. And there is Liz and Saadi, two members of our church. And we were participating in peace marches in London. And um, when you participate in a peace march, you can't always determine what signs the people near you are going to have or what they're going to say. Or what their motives are in being there. Yeah. So you jostle with all kinds of people. It's really interesting. So, but you hold up a sign that says, Jesus brings mercy, justice, love, and peace. Jesus brings mercy, love, justice, and peace. And she's going along and other things say, this is Mrs. Thatcher's era. Maggie, 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 Maggie. out, out, out. out. <laughs> <laughs> we learned the slogans very well. Oh, yeah. Well, at any rate, here were Liz and Sadi going along. And what happened was that this man came up. Bernard Mizrahi, somebody who grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family who left Judaism, who became a committed, passionate socialist, somebody who is deeply active for, for justice, and somebody who looked at our signs and said, those don't make sense. So he came up and started a conversation. He said, I see your sign there, Jesus with peace, he said, how do, how do you put that together? I don't know anything about that. Jesus and peace, that doesn't go together. So it was the beginning of a conversation. Mm -hmm. And we talked to him about Jesus. He didn't know much about Jesus. We talked to him about our understanding of what Jesus did and how Jesus has brought us peace. And he said, well, this is really interesting. I'd like to write an article about you for the Chartist, which was a socialist magazine. So we entered into dialogue with the socialists. And Bernard then met a Mennonite woman who belonged to our church, and they fell in love. It's a long story, but <laughs> a beautiful story. In Indeed. which Bernard eventually became a Christian. A believer, yeah. He became a believer, and this is his tomb. He died of, um, of a cancer. But the, even in his death, in, in Tottenham Cemetery. In the heart of a 
public, non-consecrated cemetery in London. Here it is. Love never fails. Lion and Lamb, Bernard Mizrahi, 1952 to 2003. And then underneath it. Campaigner for justice, carer, carer for, for children. children. Woo! <laughs> Talk about Christian witness. Talk about something that keeps jogging people's minds. What does Christianity have to do with care or with justice? A lion and a lamb? A what lion? is the meaning of the Impossible the... predator and prey yeah. together? Yeah. We hold forth by our embodiments impossible possibilities and questions and conversations ensue. Another picture. We talked about the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall was something which I experienced as self-evidently eternal, almost as eternal, the mega shredder. <laughs> it is the world's largest compactor and destroyer of used cars. You know how cars are smashed? Then they feed them into these huge grinders. This is what that mega shredder is. It grinds the car up into little pieces. A mile from our church, in the midst of an impoverished area where people are poor and in which the explosions and the smells that come forth from the mega shredder the vibrations they lower the property values they lower the quality of life they make people tense they just ruin their lives and so what happened was that Christians in our church some other local churches Baptist Pentecostal started getting together and saying the mega shredder is not eternal. <laughs> and so we gathered. We gathered to pray. This is behind the Greater Bethlehem Baptist Church. Mennonites, Baptists, Pentecostals together praying. And we marched. Shred the shredder. <laughs> How do you like the, uh, yeah, the hockey game on? <laughs> <laughs> we, we went to the local council. We investigated how other compactors had functioned in other parts of the U.S. We had a Ph.D. in philosophy in our church who just set out to analyze analytically, carefully, every statement that was made by the politicians. And we prayed and we prayed and we, we thought, you know, God maybe could do something here. Well, the funny thing was that God actually did. Uh, in a way that we didn't expect, and that was that the company went bankrupt. <laughs> but it was taken away. It was dismantled and taken away. Now, what's going on here? The mission of God to bring reconciliation, to bring shalom, God's mission is going ahead. The mission of God in which Christians act in a way that raise questions, that raise questions about the inevitability of evil. You know, People are interested in this kind of thing. Conversations come. People start attending our church. Here's Anna Geyer. Anna Geyer is a woman who lives in Iowa on a farm, and she loves flowers. She grows flowers. And so she thought, I'd like to share these flowers with other people. So she put it out that anybody could come to her farm and have flowers. They could cut them and take them home. She calls it her cutting garden. They come and ha get flowers. And they, they come and drink tea with her. She offers hospitality. Often so these people are deeply alienated from the church, but they want to talk about God. And Anna is just amazingly winsome. And so she'll sit, she'll drink tea, she'll let them have flowers. They can pay if they want, but payment isn't the point. The point is contact. Now, the Alan, would, would you call her a missionary? I'd call her a missional Christian. 
Okay. I'd call her, well, well, I use the term missional. I'd call her Christian. There we you know, are. She's somebody who is simply living the vision. There she's embodying are. the vision. She's incarnating the way of Jesus. Yes. And, oh my, Northern Ireland. We don't have time to look at the Northern Ireland pictures. But yeah. here are as the Irish Republican Army Christians shooting guns over a casket of one of their fallen ones. And here are the troops. British troops. Yeah. Marching along, trying to keep the Irish Republican Army from establishing control over Northern Ireland. So Christians, Protestant versus Christian Catholics. And yet it headed towards reconciliation with Ian Paisley, the archetypal Protestant figure in the middle there. And Martin McGuinness, the archetypal Catholic leader, becoming participants in a power-sharing government mediated by a lot of people. Tony Blair gets the credit, but I like that photo. It's a wonderful picture. But behind it all, and this, you know who one of those is. The Queen of England on God the right. God save our... Our gracious queen. <laughs> and who is this over here? This is the president of, of Ireland. Impossible reconciliation. Lion, lamb, who you, what language do you want to use? These things are happening. Now, who gets the credit for this kind of thing? Well, what we would like to say is that we can credit Tony Blair. We can credit the politicians. We know people who were riskily going across boundaries. We know people who were praying. We know people who were introducing conflict transformation methods of dealing with justice problems. We have seen those things happening. And the right moment comes, and evil crumbles. And God's kingdom is coming in new ways. And the, t the task of the church is not to credit the politicians, but to credit God. Mm -hmm. Amen. Say he is Amen. able to move yes. mountains yes. Right. and yes. to think of God acting thus in lives of individuals, but also in God working in socio-political ways to transform life towards shalom. So what we're saying here is that worship shapes missional people. That's mm -hmm. the topic here. And we talked about these four ways. The one is that we experience the holy, that they, we recognize these, these motivational affections that flow under our worship and come up and then that flow out into action and finally and that make us articulate able to point to these things and give account of the hope that is within us because of the way in which we have been formed by worship and that we have participated in God's mission in the world so we become articulate we learn how to speak the hope that is within us now, after lunch, we're going to be talking about what happens when people respond to Christian witness by coming to church.